thank you so much, and, and thank you very much to the program for the invitation and um, to Simon and the crew for all um, just yell if you can't hear me, and I'll, I will speak up. Um, it, it, I found it really fascinating, actually, just wandering around this house, which is so full of riches, you know, from the past and, and the present, obviously. And it's a, a great reminder that every object ever made was once contemporary, and so every object, in a sense, can have a, a conversation across time because they're both of their time and they transcend a very particular moment as well. Um, so we're, we're, I, I thought it would, I would start actually with a, a little quote um, from the curators, Dana um, Berkstead Breen, Simon Ratty and Goshka McCougar, um, about this exhibition. Um, the Enigma of the Owl, the title of the exhibition, takes its inspiration from a painting by Giorgio de Chirico. De Chirico, a contemporary of Freud, evokes with his paintings some of the disturbing states of mind that we encounter in the analytic hour of the consulting room, those states in which, in which devastation and ensuing emptiness and anime take over, empty of others, distorted, timeless, enigma in the analytic hour, an hour, oh sorry, um, an hour both timeless and strictly bound by time, the search for an answer which can never be fully found. And so I thought it would be good, Simon, to, to start off. Those are words of Dana that is actually sitting oh, over there. Oh, wonderful words, Dana. And but, they're, uh, they're wonderfully inconclusive, like psychoanalysis <laughs> and art. I guess. But you were asking about the Dekirico and the title as well. Yes. Um, so, and the evolution of the show, how it, how it came about and, so, and yeah, what it's commemorated. Dana had the initial idea of uh, doing an exhibition here for the centenary of the journal and to involve contemporary art in conversation with yeah. the archive of the International Journal, and then invited Goshka, then invited me, and then uh, she suggested, suggested some of the initial themes, and then together as a curatorial team we sort of moved forward, and, um, and then we invited the other artists to be it, sort of guest artists in, yeah. in our project. We also made work inspired by our research uh, in the archive of the journal. Um, yeah. Dana, another of Dana's great ideas was to put together a group of uh, psychoanalysts and researchers from all over the world called the Exhibition Group that we had the privilege of um, having as, a, as, as this incredible source of information and research. So we used to have actually Skype meetings with, with all of them from all over the world. And they were completely instrumental in inspiring us in terms of some of the ideas and how to develop some of the themes we started off with. And also, you know, in pointing out some of the interesting personalities from the journal uh, that you will see in the more historical presentation in the display case upstairs. And that also represented in the collaborative work that me and Goshka have made together, the print in the exhibition room. Also, they're the subject of Goshka's, a couple of Goshka's vases in the study. We've got John Riviere and Alex Strachey that were important psychoanalysts and translators that weren't recognized as you know, enough in their own time, and so the this you know, yeah. the attention brought back to them. Can I step back just, yes. just uh, before we exactly. launch into yeah. the exhi exhibition itself? Like, could you talk about the journal being founded in 1919 and, and what exactly is this journal and who founded it? I should ask Dana. <laughs> She's the journal expert. Okay, Dana, can you, do you want to speak from the background? Yes. Um, Sigmund Freud started a journal in, in Vienna and due to um, all the events and, and after the First World War, I mean, there had been some discussion. He wanted, obviously, his ideas to be diffused to an English-speaking 
world. And he had been in discussion with Ernest Jones, who was um, a psychoanalyst from the British... And this is him here. Yeah. This is us. Right. And um, he, they, they had been in discussion, and when the war was nearly over, mm. Jones wrote to Freud, we've got the letter up there, upstairs, saying, you know, the time is ripe now yeah. to start an English language journal, and you know, calling it the International Journal. It was at the beginning part of the IPA, which is the International Psychoanalytic Association. Uh -huh. And um, there were a lot of interesting shenanigans going on with other people who wanted to start an international journal in the mm -hmm. United States. All this is documented in the large compendium, which was right. part of the research. And so that's how eventually uh, the journal started. But in fact, um, it, it was first printed in Vienna, and it's only... An, somebody rather well-known called Otto Rank, an analyst, was the one who looked after it there, but that created all sorts of difficulties. This is recorded also in our archives. Right. And eventually it, it moved to London. Oh, okay. And the journal wasn't just about psychoanalysis. It had it reviews was, and... No, uh, it was... Um, as well. It was all... To begin with, it, the idea had been that it would be <coughs> translations from the German Zeitschrift. But very soon, I mean immediately almost, yeah. people offered already in English papers. And so, no, it, it's a psychoanalytic journal. And it, I mean, I'm the editor, the current editor-in-chief, the first woman, yeah. I want to add. Oh, really? All the editors oh, my goodness. You can see all the pictures of yeah. all these men over the yeah. years. And um, <laughs> so that's also why we put a focus on women of the, in the early days who were not recognized for their the, their role. I mean, they were, Joe Riviere was very recognized for, as a psychoanalyst, but not her role yeah. in the journal. And that's why you've got these photographs and letters and things upstairs of yeah. these early females, yes. these early women involved yeah. in, in the movement. Yes. I see. And so, in, uh, I mean, my understanding of Freud is rudimentary, so I'm sure I'm <coughs> shoot me down in flames. But as far as I know, Freud wrote a lot about art around Leonardo and Michelangelo and, and other artists, but he wasn't so keen on contemporary art, uh, the contemporary art of his time. Is that, is that right? Yes, I mean, uh, well, we're, we're studying. I mean, that's going to be part, I think, of the next discussion that yeah. we're going to have here a little bit. What was written about art, how it developed over the years, um, and the way of writing about art, the psychoanalytic way of writing about art. So, yeah. you know, and of music, we're going to have another conversation to do with music because again, he, he claimed he wasn't interested in music and didn't have a musical ear, but actually psychoanalysis is very musical. So, right. um, you yeah. know, there's an interesting thing going on there. I found a, um, a quote from a 1971 review of a book on, um, uh, it was published who wrote it, oh, by Jack J. Spencer, um, on the relationship for Freud between art and psychoanalysis. And, and there was a line in it um, where, where he said, I mean, but be interested to hear what you think about this. Um, the artist for Freud is characterized by the flexibility with which he handles repression. He turns his most personal wishes and fantasies into art through a transformation which softens the offensive aspects of these wishes, conceals the origin of the it conceals the origin in the artist, and by observing aesthetic rules offers other men an incentive bonus. 
The incentive bonus is the sugar coating, inspector's words, of the work of art, its surface and musical qualities. I thought that was really interesting. I mean, perhaps, Daniel, you as an artist in this show, who's obviously been very influenced by Freud in your sculpture, and I assume in your in the way you live, yes. possibly. Well, what do you think of that? What's, your, what's the role of Freud in your work? You know, I first came to this museum because I was going to analysis um, not far away from here. So I came to... Was it Freudian analysis? Yes. Right. And I came to examine this space. And I, as a sculptor, I was really drawn to his collection of... Greek and Roman sculptures, which he was collecting in, in 1910 in Vienna. It was a kind of thing that a lot of people were doing there. You know, it was quite fashionable because we were all coming from Greece. And he was choosing, picking these works, which suited his ideas. You know, he was reading a lot about Greek mythology, and then he could write, have a Greek sculpture in front of him. Um, and I think that coming from the analytical room, which is a very mm. private uh, you know, space, which we don't really know what happens there, into his room, which is an analytical room as well. But I could examine his ideas or him, not only as an analyst, but as a curator, as an obsessive collector. And, and I really, that was something that I was very interested in, understanding him in a kind of sculptural way. And how, how was that manifested in your sculptures? So what I did is I was very lucky this is 12 years ago I was take, I came with a, it was just when digital cameras were and I was trying to and I took photographs which I have of a lot of works which interested me and I walked around in, in with, his house in the in the study in those because yeah. it's very small you know, heads, and each one's got a base which he made. He said he'd go to the oh, he'd go to the museum in in, in Vienna, and they'd yeah. ma they'd make a base together. Oh. So I took photographs of all of these, and I walked around with these photographs for a year or two, not knowing what to do with them. Mm. And then I started a discussion with Art Angel, who do projects with artists outside of galleries, mm -hmm. and I started modeling these images in clay but not really knowing where it's going to go and that's that's that was the beginning of five years of a discussion with Art Angel about the project which then ended up in as dig in um, just off Tottenham Court mm -hmm. Road it's a wonderful show. Yeah. which was about the analyst the sculptor and the archaeologist so these three yeah. senses of the digging which um uh, follow through my work in a way. And that, where you placed those sculptures, that was in the site of an old cinema. Yes. And of course, cinema was mm. sort of invented when psychoanalysis was invented. Yes. So there's a really nice connection there too, in yes. terms of the, the flickering lights in the unconscious or in the in the theatre. Yeah. yeah. And you would walk. You, you walked into a building site. It's a site which has been, it's now there's a hospital being built there, but it's a site owned by the NHS, and it, when I went to the slate uh, over 20 years ago, it was a car park, and it was still um, derelict, and there aren't many sites in the centre of London. And we could use the site, you know, the, the kind of shell, of this concrete shell as a place to create this sculptural expedition. Mm. But it felt like going 
like uh, like excavation. Yeah, yes. it felt like yeah. going underground. It felt like going underground, which is yeah. something I was really fascinated with. Yes. And I think we both previously from this project were fascinated with this idea of the archaeology of the mind, mm. the idea of excavation in psychoanalysis, but also as a parallel activity in archaeology, which is, of course, what's happening in the study. Yeah. And the fact that even in the study there, you know, some of those sculptures come from graves and burial grounds as mm. well, so you're also constantly thinking about being underground, and mm. it's always such a good metaphor for the unconscious anyway. Mm. Um, So I think it's interesting because independently from each other and from this project, we both already did a lot of research on Freud, his collection, and these kind of ideas connected to it. And we were both fascinated with his collection. I mean, I was fascinated with his collection even from the point of view of desire and just just how people collect and what they buy and how it becomes a compulsion. And I believe he started buying the first figure after his dad died. This is what I read anyway. So, um, yeah, so so when we found each other again in this project, we already had a lot of common ground, you know. And what was your particular interest in Freud? Well, again, I was very much interested in this idea of uh, archaeology of the mind. Um, and this was something you'd been exploring for a long time? For a long time. And, then, and I'd already been used images of figures from his collection and even yeah. images of Bergassa, his house in Vienna, as part of some of my collage and photomontage, as a sort of reference in the background, or, yeah. um, because I do use a lot of those kind of images. Um, I mean, of course, I was familiar with some of his writing, um, and uh, so that was the kind of main interest. And also recently I was also interested in his idea, his concept of parapraxis, because I started, coincidentally, this new body of work which is based on an archive of misreadings of mine, yeah. which is a new series of neon work, one of which that is in the study so now. So like a Freudian slip. So it's like a Freudian yeah. slip, yeah, but right. basically I just uh, realized that I just something that I do fairly regularly. I just misread things and I came up with this kind of evocative <laughs> metaphysical yeah. phrases that were between a found text and a new kind of poem. Yeah. And so I started building this alternative archive, which, you know, it goes hand in hand with the archive of images that I constantly collect in my studio, which are then used in my photographic work, collage, mm. photomontage. So they're kind of two parallel activity, but in both of them there's an element of free association yeah. and the unconscious yeah. as a way of, you know, making. Um, so, yeah, so there was a kind of serendipity in the fact that I was already also developing this, and then mm. Goshka said, oh, do you want to be involved in this project? Mm. And then I already knew what I was going to put in the study. Mm. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was quite funny. Just before, <laughs> just before Simon was telling me this, I was in this room and I was looking at that picture at the back and it's actually nine views of Austria. But I thought it was called Nice Views of Austria. And then I went, oh. And one thing I must add, because actually I don't, I mean, he wrote a lot about Freud slips and all sorts of stuff, but mm-hmm. there's only a short passage that he actually wrote about parapraxis and about mm-hmm. misreading. What is parapraxis? Well, I think it's what he calls basically misreading, mishearing, I believe. Oh, that's it. Oh, okay. Is that, is that? Actually, Ernest Jones was the one who coined the term. Ah, uh, did he? Ah, great. So, here we go. And, um, yes, but there's a funny story that Freud mentions where basically he was saying, oh, when I'm on holiday and I 
I'm traveling, because I'm such an obsessive avid collector, I keep reading shop signs saying antiques when they're not. You know? <laughs> so that was a good way of connecting yeah. the two, the collection yeah, yeah. and the misreading. And did you, so the work that you've included in yeah. the show of your own, is that, did you make it specifically for this show? Yeah, the work yes. I've made, it was all specifically made for this show. Yeah, yeah. all the prints, the collaborative print with Goshka and the Neon were made especially for the show, so they were very much influenced and chosen with the space in mind and the research as a background. Yeah. Like, for example, you know, my prints upstairs, the black and white prints, they deal with the iconography of the myth and the story of Oedipus through film and theater. And of course, that was very much influenced by the genealogy of the logo of the journal, which is a stylized um, <coughs> version of Oedipus and the Sphinx, the painting by Anger, uh -huh. uh, the print of which used to be in Freud's study and now is in the display case upstairs. Yeah. So that's the kind of, you know, um, yeah. So some things are very specifically, I mean, you know, the misreadings in a way I was already developing and mm -hmm. then it just fitted perfectly. But, yeah. Yeah. And, and the title, The Enigma of the Hour. Yeah, the title, I mean, again, it's something that we discussed together <laughs> with Dana and Goshka, and I already borrowed from the, uh, the Kiriko in the past. I'm very interested in the Kiriko. It's fantastic with titles. My previous project also, which was very much about metaphysical time, had a, was a real kind of homage to the Kiriko. Um, in this instance, I feel like it was less of a direct homage, but nevertheless, we appropriated the title from his painting. But it still kind of makes sense in an interesting way because, um, you know, the Kiriko was a contemporary of Freud and was very much interested also in very similar subjects like pain, the unconscious, you know, that kind of... Uh, and um, having said that, though, he was never directly influenced by Freud. I mean, there's various, you know, in my research I came across various versions of this, but most people agree that actually he wasn't aware of Freud's writing at least until 1920. Right. And the painting, The Nigam of the Hour, is from 1911. It's an early metaphysical painting. The other thing about this painting, I mean, not only the title is so appropriate because it involves the Enigma and the Hour, and we're thinking about the psychoanalytical hour. Mm -hmm. Temporality is one of the things in the show. Uh, but also the painting itself, by the way, if you're interested, there's a great piece on this painting in Brooklyn Rail that a scholar has written about the painting, which really analyzed and examined the painting in a very interesting way. But the painting is very much about uh, the Kiriko philosophy and interest in time and metaphysical time and Nietzsche uh, concept of the eternal return. And so you've got different elements of time, you've got a clock, you've got the shadow, the light, the sun is casting, which suggests another time. It looks like a building, it looks like an Italian train station, so you think about train times and being in between places, so it's a kind of threshold space as well. So all of this seemed quite appropriate, and then when we added the Under the Years of Psychological Thought as a sort of subtitle, I also liked, obviously, the conversation from the temporality point of view of one hour, 100 years, and also the thousands of years you have in the study. And in a way, you know, in terms of the material that some of this artwork are made of, in terms of some of the references of all the contemporary works throughout the house, there is this kind of idea of, um, you know, time compression, metaphysical time, temporality as well, yeah. you know. And so did, did you um, choose artists who you knew were interested in Freudian ideas, or did you more <laughs> just choose artists whose work embodied yeah. certain ideas so about the unconscious? The way I came about choosing the artists is basically um, 
you know, my curatorial process is very much the same as my process of making my work. And in fact, the curatorial process is just an extension of, of making my work, and the two things are interlinked. It's like stepping out of my work and expanding into space and having guests, if you know what I mean. So, um, so I start always pretty much in an instinctive way, again, with sort of free association. I get attracted to things without questioning it at first. It's a very organic process. And in a way I realize more things surface more and more afterwards. So the beginning is quite a sort of automatic thing where I'm sort of putting things together, which is the same way I construct an image if I make a collage, you know. And in fact I always feel that my shows are a kind of collage in themselves, you know. Um, and then obviously, you know, like someone like Daniel, I realized we had already so much in common. He was already so inspired by Freud and there was, we connected on this level. But then, you know, there were other people like Linda and Paloma Vargavais that I thought would bring in a really fresh way of approaching this or looking at this. And, you know, I had worked with Paloma previously. I was already a friend of Linda. I wanted to work with her. And, I, you know, we found interesting connections between us. And at the end, they also kind of put it together, you know. Goshka was very interested in Freud already also, but from a different point of view, because, in fact, a large project that she did also for the Prada Foundation show was very much inspired by a letter from Freud to Einstein. Uh, called Why War, uh, where they, they basically talk about the need of great minds coming together to help humanity, um, you know, have a better future. Kind mm -hmm. of. So that's kind of more where she was coming from. You know? yeah. And then, and then an artist like Paloma, who's a sculptor who does the, you know, the carvings. I mean, her work in a sense embodies ideas around the uncanny. You yeah. know that you've got a human figure on the floor, but yeah. it looks so dislocated in that yeah. time yeah. and space that it becomes it embodies a kind of strangeness. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I felt also that the specific works I selected really made sense in the concept of in the context of psychoanalysis and the context of Freud's ideas. Mm -hmm. So um, also the other kind of idea was this was this reference to Oedipus, the idea of enigma, things that somehow enigma or sphinxes in themselves in, throughout the show. Um, also the kind of classical reference, of course Freud was very interested in classical writing apart from art, you know, the whole idea of Oedipus, mm -hmm. and so in a way that's a kind of another story another story you know another reference within the show if you know if you, so and I kept sort of finding out things more and more like you know the sculpture by Paloma of Stars is very much Sphinx-like uh, Linda's collage are very much enigmas your bust is blinded maybe think of a deeper in a different way but it wasn't like I thought about it in a you know it was this thing surfaced sort of later yeah um, yeah um uh, Daniel, when you're, because uh, these sculptures, as far as I know, they they haven't been shown before, yeah. and they've chosen from the studio. So, um, to what extent do you, uh, uh, how conscious are you of what you want to achieve when you're making something, or how intuitive, or how how do you tap into your unconscious in a sense when you're making it? So, with, I've got a very small figurine on the the desk in the office, which. About a few years ago, I, I worked a lot with the body, using mannequins, or, but never really working with 
say, a dancer or a model. So I started working with dancers in the studio, so I'd invite them into... I've got a small office space at the back of my studio. And I wanted to turn it around, so instead of me lying on this sofa, they are now lying on what would be my sofa. Right. In a way. And I started a kind of dialogue with them, and I'd make these clay figurines in different sizes, which were not very much me modeling what they look like, because that they became very boring. It was more about this, this relationship, this tapping into this something that happens between them and me, this music, and maybe ideas come up. And these actions are quite fast. They're very much about the hand. And sometimes I don't even look mm. at what I'm doing. Mm. So it's, it's, and, and, and it did come from trying to move away from being very in this world of words of analysis, say. Mm. Okay, so more in, and they became, they grew, grew and grew. So there were more and more and more of these. And I would look back on what I made and that would inform my next move. So they became like yeah. a language. Um, and some of them were shown in a show that I had at Fifth Street last year in the old space. Yeah. So I had these tables again with a fabric and these figurines. So when, the, when, it, when, when it came possible to show one of them here, and Simon, the one that's on the table is really yours, again, it, for me it was like they're going to dance now with his sculptures, you know, they're going right. to be, and I know that I'm going to reuse that image over and over again to contextualize what I do. And I kind of feel that there's that small kind of embryonic figure dancing or talking, and I, I can kind of imagine Freud sitting there. <laughs> and maybe he wants to throw that one out. But <laughs> um, So that, that was a great a good surprise because you, it's a, lot of, a lot of the time when you put work in a different context you don't, you don't know what to expect yeah. and I didn't really know what to expect and, and when I came and I saw it it was like this is it you know mm. I'm very happy with that the small mannequins that are throughout mm -hmm. are based I was making I've been working quite a lot with mannequins over the last um, few years four or five years I found out because I worked a lot with Greek sculptures, and when people would come to the studio, I'd explain Greek sculpture as modern-day mannequin. They were painted pink, you know. They were very much about this ideal body. And I used the word mannequin so much that I went and bought a mannequin, and we copied it in the studio in marble. And I wasn't happy with the body. I just kept the head and, you know... There's always this problem when you make a head where you put it. Mm. I put it back on the mannequin. So they, these mannequins' heads were based on the heads of the mannequin themselves, and the bodies of the mannequins were the bodies. Mm. And that, that kind of journey, and the great thing is that these mannequins, which are Adele Wuchstein mannequins, have names. They're based on real people. So I had titles for my work because I could just recreate that. And what was nice as well that Adele Wuchstein um, was a cousin, a cousin of my uh, grandma. So, so, so there was this kind of 
connection and yeah, family connection to this story. These two mannequins are based on a bust of a mannequin from a um, museum in Bath. Um, that's why they're called after bath, bath mannequins. And they use this idea of where the body has uh, a marble with a texture and the head is a phenomics. And the idea is that it's the same head, both of them, but it's, it's it starts from the same head, and then it moves on. So they were work- sort of mind body split. Exactly, and the way I work with them. Yeah. Is, is but I'm quite fascinated also in these works the, the different um, elements of translation mm. and layers, mm. layers of time and process in your work. So the mm. fact that you. You know, you copy from the mannequin, then it's carved in one way, then you do some additional carving, which actually looks more like it's sometimes defacing, so it's going against the kind of original ideal mm-hmm. that you've copied. So mm-hmm. all of this I find really fascinating from the point of view of translation. And, you know, translation is obviously another theme in the show, mm-hmm. from unconscious to conscious, mm-hmm. from idea to object. You know, the role of translation in terms of always in the creative process of making an artwork, you know. But with, with these works of Daniel, this idea of erosion, of carving away, of, you know, uh, copying something, but then removing layers, which also actually was very much present in your show, first bit with the yeah. other uh, mannequins, you know, this idea of revealing the layers and... I found really fascinating and, and obviously appropriate for, for the exhibition too, yeah. Yeah. Um, how do you want them to be read? I mean, this is a question for both of you. Anyway. How, in terms of translation, obviously you make them with a certain intention, but then that will never be probably precisely yeah. communicated because an art object is by its very nature a sort of indeterminate object. So... I think uh, I'm happy for them to be... When they, when they leave the studio, they have to... You know, they have to be hold themselves in this world, and I'm happy for them to have to be read in. Obviously, having them here, they've read in a totally different way. But I'm happy for them to have enough stories in them that different people can kind of fish out um, and recreate. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, I don't know how, how where this makes sense, but a lot of the works that are on Freud's desk or in his study. You know, they were mass-produced. And we can, we go, if you go to, the, say, the museum in Greece, you'll see a lot of those similar figurines because there were f- these factories of mm-hmm. making these um, uh, um, sculptures over and over again. Here, um, obviously, they've got a very specific... Uh, they become very particular in the context of him being the curator. Mm-hmm. They become these players on the stage. Um, I, d- I don't know why that's. <laughs> it's, it really sticks out to me because when they were made, they were made for people's shrines, for people's homes, so people could. Maybe that's why they could really build the small audience, curate. You know, they had a small place in their house where they yeah. um, relate to them. <coughs> maybe recreating these as well once again allows them, you know, to explode in a different way. Also, the element of time I find fascinating in both works, even though they're very different. The object on the desk, you make them very in a very immediate, very quick way, 
but yet some of them also look very ancient, even prehistoric. Mm-hmm. So I like this tension, this dichotomy from the sort of time point of view. Um, but also in the bust, I like the fact that you've got obviously the geological time in the material, but also you've got a suggestion of the time of the face turning. Mm-hmm. You know, just like if the neck has just moved, you know, mm-hmm. which is a bit like photographic time, and I find that quite fascinating. I think as well, because for me, seeing these, you know, especially the clay or historic objects, mm-hmm. the, you know, Assyrian ones, you could really feel the sense of hand that's made them. Mm-hmm. You know, they were made two, three, four thousand years ago, but you can really feel this humanity that in the touch, in the movement, and that's something which. Um, drives me a lot because this idea of how the things that we leave will be read mm. and if we can embody them with that sense of touch mm. that would be read you know especially today when everything's so digital yeah. it doesn't allow that sense of humanity within it mm. where these clay objects really really do but also it's like a translation of your experience with a dancer yes. in the moment mm. and I'm fascinated by that because it's a kind of translation of that literally yeah yeah and I mean both of you very much play with um, sort of classical and antique tropes in a way but they're very but both of your work of course is extremely contemporary and there's an interesting parallel there to with Freud you know that he yeah. is an extremely modern thinker yeah. about yeah. how we travel through the world mm-hmm. but he's obsessed with very very old things yeah, yeah. and I think there's a really nice echo there really. yeah yeah like, <laughs> sure. Freud's interesting and your interest yeah, yeah. I mean but in a way that kind of sensibility also became another presence in the exhibition I just mm-hmm. realized that you know I ended up selecting things which were figurative a lot mm-hmm. of them which were made in a very classical mm-hmm. way like carving wood carving marble you know mm-hmm. some kind of more timeless techniques um, yeah, and also yeah, the, the, the classical references and even the figuration was was mm. kind of relating to a lot of the a, a lot of that and a lot of the heads and busts mm. in the study, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask this sort of clumsy question about. Um, I mean, I, I have I'm sure I've met some artists and writers who are a bit scared of psychoanalysis because they don't want to <laughs> muck up that. Their crazy thoughts. The, the raw energy. <laughs> you know, they want to keep the raw energy. They want to keep the dislocation and the anxiety because, in a sense, that fuels their creativity. Yeah. So, I mean, there is a an argument, possibly a fatuous one, that that um, the very same person wouldn't make art. You know, yeah. because they've got it all sorted, yeah. so they could just lead a nice, calm life. Yeah. I mean, what, what would you say? To I that? Mean, it's interesting that because when we had a discussion with Paloma, with her, she she. She hasn't had any experience of, mm. and she exactly said that she doesn't want to change things around. Everything works as that's it is. That's true. That's yeah. exactly what she said, and, yeah. and she wants to keep it that way. Yeah. yeah. I think I, you know, I don't. I'm not a preacher of analysis. I, I think that there's good things about it. I'm not in analysis at the moment. Um, I think it's, to a certain degree, at certain area times in life, it can be very helpful. Mm. Um, because you, if, if things are acute, you need to sort them out. It's a good place to sort them out, and it's a, it's quite a nice journey. But I do think that it's it can become problematic because, say, if you're working in your studio alone and someone gives you an idea and it's a kind of flashy idea to do with you, you know, so that becomes a kind of 
text or mm. something that you can channel things through or mm. question things through, and, and that can become problematic yeah. because it denies a certain sense of freedom, mm. a certain sense. You, you can't get as lost as maybe sometimes you should or right. could. Yeah. Um, because it makes you too acutely aware of your thought process. I think it depends how you and, work. And, and it gives you, it, it, obviously, but it gives you an eye like a if you, it's an idea that comes from you within the analysis, and that idea you can, mm. it's sitting in your mind where, and it, you end up putting through actions through that system, mm. of, through that energy. And that I found as a problem. A problem because it, for me, you know, obviously, because I think there's things happening, say, as a maker, as an artist in the studio, which can't be so clearly put into words. You know? mm-hmm. something, something falls, creates mm-hmm. a kind of drama, and that drama allows, uh, you know, disaster creates mm-hmm. great art. So mm-hmm. I think it depends also from the artists and how they work in the studio, you know, mm-hmm. because. I think the fact that maybe you worked with analysis or whatever and you have that kind of vocabulary, I don't think it means necessarily that there's going to be always that element, added element of control within the studio. I mean, I think it does depend very much on how you work. I mean, I definitely, uh, a few years ago, started to embrace a much more um, organic way of working with free association and all sorts of things, which maybe I wasn't doing so much before. I sort of stopped pursuing the fantasy of the idea that I had in my head. Because I think sometimes artists also work like that. You have an idea and then you try to translate mm. that and get to that. And mm. sometimes it's an impossibility. The failure is interesting, mm. takes you somewhere else. But I kind of really stopped working in this mm. way and I started working in a much more unmediated, automatic way. And if anything, for me, it's like I've got private mm. rituals where I do things in a certain way. Like, mm. I wouldn't spend too many days making a collage because if I do, it becomes a, a formula. It becomes uh, or something contrived. So there's moments where I collect images, moments where I work, w- moments where I put things together, you know. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, if, if I'm aware that I'm actually trying to be too contrived, I actually walk away mm. so when you're putting your collages together the ones that you made for this show what what was your process with that it was well, I mean, purely it's, sort of instinctive your it's very much instinctive I mean obviously in this particular case because I made them especially for mm. this exhibition and so I was thinking about Oedipus mm. that was if you like the common denominator having said that I've mixed other images from my mm. archive within that to mm. disrupt mm. that so there's other images in there um, but yeah, otherwise it's a very automatic, uh, fairly quick way of uh, putting things together on yeah. the studio table and um, yeah, I just kind of put things together, then maybe I look at it for a day or two, there's very little changes then. Mm. It has to feel very immediate and, and, and truthful somehow, mm. Mm. and not staged, otherwise I think it's... Uh, yeah. yeah. And has psychoanalysis itself or reading around Freud it actually directly influenced you? Yeah, I'm sure it's directly influenced me. And in, in what aspect of it? Well, what I mentioned earlier about some of oh, this the concept of the archaeology of the yeah. mind, the yeah. interest in classism, yeah, yeah. I was already somehow, I don't really know why, when I started making collage, there was always a very sculptural sensibility. Mm-hmm. I was always using images of figures. So already I was 
you know, incorporating classical sculpture as well as modern sculpture in, in those kind of works. But yeah, I just then the, the two things sort of merged together because also I was quite fascinated in this idea of collecting and curating and choreographing and how you put things together, you know, in an automatic way. And so even from the collecting point of view, you know, I'm quite fascinated just with the kind of mechanism behind it in terms of desiring something or how it can be connected with memory or very early memories because often there's an element unconsciously of recognizing something from the past yeah. you're not aware of it but this is possibly also how you're attracted to something mm -hmm. and you know this is how I collect the images in my studio because I don't organize them mm -hmm. you know I don't have neat boxes saying, you know, <laughs> flowers, rocks, shells, whatever, you know, which some artists do. I'm not, I'm not saying that's not a good way of doing it. I'm just saying I, it's quite important for me that I forget the source where the images come from, yeah. that everything gets mixed up in this other kind of place. And then it's sort of saved from this place and it's given a new <clears throat> context. Yeah. And, and do you think there's something therapeutic in that process? Ah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. And I think there are a lot of parallels in, from that point of view between uh, art and analysis. And I was also quite fascinated in my research to read that Freud himself was saying that artists, in a way, were the first analysts, you know, in the way that they connected to the unconscious through their work, uh, which I find fascinating. Um, so... Yeah, and I actually always felt that if I wasn't an artist, I would have probably become an analyst. <laughs> <laughs> and for you, is there a therapeutic aspect of, of making work, do you think? I mean, you used, when you were sculpting clay with the dancer in the room, that was a form of sketching. Yes, and I do a lot of uh, yeah. doodling yeah. in sketchbooks, which um, like obsessively, but not really knowing what I'm doing, or you know, maybe afterwards I look at it and try and find out, but then years later I can see that I'm doing fabric cutouts that relate to this database of doodles, mm -hmm. so that kind of, and sometimes I, like, like you, I do is think if, if I wasn't a, an artist, maybe I would have been an analyst too, <laughs> this idea that, yeah, because, you know, it's very, it's very sweet when you can understand something of yourself within the context of analysis, you know, to break through an idea or something that yeah. bugs you and, and the freedom that that, that, mm -hmm. that creates. So, um, yes, but I think that, you know, we, like, we make things or as artists, we put them out in the world, we kind of absorb how they are received and what happens and kind of build on that to make mm -hmm. it. I'm sure it's got aspects of therapeutic idea in it, but sometimes I try and disconnect myself a bit from them as well, so yeah. let them be for themselves. But of course, to be an artist is to try and understand something about yourself, yes. whereas to be an analyst would be to try and understand the world. It's a sort of more outward projection. Yeah. But, but you're bringing yourself as a translator, yeah. so I do think analysts probably find that... They're like a medium, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, and they were all patients. Zaina, well. would you would you agree I with that? Start, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I have some. Can I say something about Simon about your process that reminded me, like maybe with this realistic, like with the cut and paste of words, or mm -hmm. mix them in a bag and poems come out? Is that is that That's that? A, no, no, no. I misread something in a book. No, about your collage. Ah, the collage. 
Well, it's less uh, chance. No, there is an element of chance. If anything, actually, I think the unconscious is very much paramount in the sense that I like the way that it becomes another system. It still becomes organized and a context that is another, it's an alternative. And I think it's very much mediated by my unconscious in a way. Yeah, so there isn't really any element of chance. Because actually, even when I collect images, even though I do it in an automatic way, I pick up a book in a flea market, then I take the image out, whatever. Actually, there is another narrative that is going on behind the scene. I'm pretty sure of this, yeah. And do you know what that is? Well, no, but I think it's an unconscious narrative. But what's interesting is that, you know, when then I look back at my work afterwards, I can recognize themes, interests, things that are keep popping up. I can then maybe read things... Yeah, also from a psychoanalytical point of view, but retrospectively. I'm not aware of it in the moment when I'm actually making yeah. something. It's more, which is the same with the sort of curatorial process, you know. And at the beginning, it does start in a very kind of organic fashion, mm -hmm. and then things are sort of revealed to me more and more. Yeah. And, and what about the role of dreams in your work? I try, you know, there's a, there's a moment which happened to me once in analysis where I was lying there and the room was huge. I felt you, like, you know, when you're a child and you're lying in bed and the ceiling is much, much higher from what, you know. I'm trying to read, I think, I don't, is that a dream? I think maybe that's more a kind of a free association or. And I'm trying to recreate that now. So. I'm trying to. I'm taking those small figurines and I'm making them very big. So when we meet them, we meet them. When I say very big, so it's around four meters. So we meet them more like a child. Mm -hmm. So we don't try and do analyze them or compare them to the knowledge we have in our head, but just meet them in a kind of quite sculptural way, right. which is a body and another kind of part of a body. Yeah. So I think that's in a way creating something which is. A dream for me now. Mm. Um, sometimes I've there's moments in the studio which have I re remembered or I've maybe dreamt of them in the past, but mm. I, I haven't had a dream to make. I haven't woken up in the morning with, after a dream and gone to make yeah. a piece of work. That hasn't happened. Right. But I try and sometimes to create that those. Sweet moments of freedom that one can have in a dream, mm. in the world, mm. so that when we walk through it, it can allow us this moment of free association, mm. of freedom. Um, so maybe I try and build up these kind of family of objects mm. that allow that to happen. Yeah. Because maybe I find it a, a very sweet moment, and I want to share mm. that uh, moment. Mm. Now, about in your work, Simon. Um, I don't feel like there's a very clear connection with my dream world in terms of I had a dream and then, you know, I yeah. made something in the studio. But certainly is the same kind of language when we're talking about the unconscious and mm. the things I was mentioning earlier, mm. how I use so much free association, mm. you know. So from that point of view, I think it's a similar language. Mm. Yeah. But I don't, I, I would never sort of have a dream and then trying to you know, actively, I don't know, translate that or, yeah. you, know, you know, in a kind of yeah. conscious way anyway.
maybe unconsciously. Maybe you don't even realize you do. Yeah, yeah maybe unconsciously. Yeah. Exactly, actually. Yeah. So I can't really answer your question. Yeah. yeah. Maybe unconsciously. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, in terms of, uh, this is a bit of a simplistic question, but in terms of art movements, is surrealism up there for you in terms of... I'm very interested in surrealism. Yeah. And you, Daniel? It goes in kind of, uh, comes and goes. Mm. And kind of, now I'm much more interested in kind of abstract expressionism. Oh, really? How's that? that? I would never have guessed that. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the action of making Mm. these sculptures, Mm. um, the action of the doodles, you know, Mm. all these sketches. trying to have this strong energy and mm-hmm. make it you know a force that creates mm. so but that you know it comes and goes mm. would you ever make purely abstract and maybe there's no such thing as purely abstract but you know crudely speaking I, I, I have been thinking of doing yeah. some abstract painting yeah, oh, thank you. yeah how, how, how would that happen <laughs> right, <okay>. recently you had to laugh that's Talish, it's my wife. Oh, okay. <laughs> Daniel's wife. Fragments <laughs> or something. Yeah. yeah, because the, the fabric cutouts are very, they're quite abstract now. There's no, there's no, no much figures in them. Mm-hmm. So I was kind of playing around with that. Right, yeah, yeah. And so what's your relationship with surrealism? Um, well, I'm just very interested and fascinated by it. Uh, so it's a constant source of inspiration and research, you know. But I mean, it's not the only one. I've been very interested in Dada and Gutai and all sorts of other yeah. things in my work as well, you know, as a reference. But um, but I'm certainly, yeah, quite obsessed with surrealism. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe you could ask if anyone has any questions. Racing through a lot here. Yeah. <laughs> We've answered everything. <laughs> yeah, but you still got the one, you had this really amazing question oh, about fine. what happens if, um, what do you think Freud would think? Oh, yeah, all right. Want to ask that? I really love that question. Here's my great question. Um, <laughs> so, what would Freud think of a show such as this? Um, because, as I mentioned before, he famously wasn't particularly interested in contemporary, the contemporary art of his time. And, but this show, of course, is a show of future art for him. You know, it's, it's work from the future. So, it's, so, so in, a sense, in a sense, this is kind of like sci-fi for Freud. Yes. Yeah. So if we can imagine yeah. him waking up from the stream of his, which has been going on yeah. for 80 years, he's been yeah. sleeping. So I don't. Uh, if he woke up now from that dream and walked through the, his house, mm-hmm. he'd probably walk, check, find all his objects are in place. Yeah. Then you go upstairs to the journal, see what they wrote. <laughs> you go to the rings, you know those special yeah. rings, and find new oh, disciples. Rings, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. look after. Yeah. Would he see? Would he look at our work? I don't know. And would he be annoyed if you put something on his desk? Or he'd fall on Paloma's yeah. sculpture behind yeah. him and get really annoyed with that. Yeah. I think it would be more that kind of a... I think I, you would probably like the, the classical aspect in some of this work because he could relate to that. So mm. that would make it probably more palatable to him mm. than something that didn't have that mm. possibility. Mm. 
Well, like your bust, for example. Maybe, maybe the, the small one maybe probably throws through the window what's this on my desk. <laughs> Someone's been sitting in my chair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of time travel is very present in this house, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. very much so. Yeah. Well, in a way, when I first came... Well, I mean, I've been before, but when I first came to look at the house again with this project yeah. in mind, the house was close to the public, so there was nobody really mm-hmm. here, which was great in a way because we could really <laughs> look at everything. But it really made me feel <clears throat> like I wanted, I wanted to imagine the family living in the house. I wanted to imagine people as a personality museum. Yeah. So I immediately thought somehow I wanted to bring figures back, mm. which you know uh, I did bring a lot of figures back. But you've curated all the objects as well like you we were looking at the mirrors before well no i curated just a couple of, yeah. of the things i right. like the mirrors uh, yeah. and i decided to include the wolfman painting in the exhibition yeah. guide and to sort of appropriate mm. that as part of our exhibition mm. but yeah the mirrors have been obviously shown before but they weren't shown recently and i decided mm. i really wanted to have them in conversation with my print because mm. it's another mirror of a kind and it features uh, a mirror holder the figure of a mirror holder within it because, yeah, of course, for me, it was very exciting to also thread a narrative, a journey around the house, a mm. journey through time, but also to make connections between our work, the archive of the journal, ideas of psychoanalysis, and, of course, the collection of the museum. You know? mm. So to include, you know, the sphinxes and the vases or the mm. rings in a display case, the, and also to bring the mirrors out yeah. or... Yeah, it was um, yeah, it was a nice way of yeah. making connections. Yeah, and they're unintentionally surreal objects, aren't they? Those mirrors, because yeah. they're mirrors you can't see anything in. Yeah, like and they, they've got amazing drawings on them too. Yeah. 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 What is what is that about the drawings? Um, well, they all have different kind of uh, things on them. Yeah. I, I, I can send you some material about it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's written on the guide actually. Yeah. But. Um, yeah, there's different representation. I think one is Egyptian and the other one are Etruscan. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just also like the metaphor of the dream, you know, from mm. the sort of point of view of, of the unconscious as well. I mean, of the mirror. Did I say dream? Dream, yeah. <laughs> ah, <laughs> there you are. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, I mean, they represent various scenes. Um, but yeah, I think they're amazing. Yeah. And actually, we're going to include them because, of course, we're also working on the book, which is going to come out in the autumn, mm-hmm. and um, which is going to be very much a sort of artist book in a way as well, with lots of images of the artist as well as um, yeah. obviously installation from from here, because it was very important to have you know this, the, the images of the works in the house. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah, we're incorporating lots of images of things from the archive of the journal and the museum collections for so the mirrors, the sphinxes, and so to continue this kind of conversation within the pages of the book, you know. Mm-hmm. But also, when I've done previous books, it again becomes an extension of, of making work, and, mm-hmm. you know, luckily I work with designers that allow me to be quite hands-on, so I really yeah. design the layout and the sort of dialogue of images. So also for the viewer, it becomes quite a immediate experience, you know, as well as, you know, the text and the other things in it, you know, the, the, the sort of dialogue of images, it's a sort of way of writing with images, if you like. Writing with images? Yes. Yeah, yeah. You've got a question. Oh, yeah. Could you talk to everyone about being in dialogue with the group of international 
and researchers, yeah. Yeah, and I just wondered if you could just look at that. You talked very easily about directly, you know, the experience of being here with Freud, but that yeah. just sounded like a different, like a contemporary and a sort of broader perspective. I wondered how that, whether and how that affected. Yeah, I mean, that mainly involved me, Goshka, and obviously Dana, and a group of uh, psychoanalysts and researchers. But yeah, we had regular sort of Skype meetings. Were there uh, themes? Or what yeah, well, they, they would bring up some themes which were part of their research. And also, you know, they some of the research is in the compendium, which is uh, got all these various texts about various items in the display case, which is next to a display case. So... Um, um, yeah, for me it was just a privilege, it was just fascinating to to just sort of take it all in, you know, and to have uh, these great minds uh, being a sort of extension for us of, of the research and also they had very much things they wanted to write about and include and I believe they're also going to include in another book that yes, you're I mean, the way I chose the the researchers that I invited into this group because they had a specific interest or I thought they could do something interesting on a particular topic. In fact, you know, it was one of those things that grew organically and so some of them, their text never became anything in the exhibition but this is partly also why it's going to be developed for another book. Some of them got very interested in, in one of the subjects that are in the exhibition, but they developed it in another way as well. So really there's been a lot of kind of interaction and... Um, but a very rich exchange, I would say. Yeah. But I was also interested in what you were saying about picking up on dreams and the role of dreams, because of course in psychoanalysis that's fundamental. And... And also because, in a way, dream, we now think in terms of dream as not only night dreams, but it's happening during the day as well and all the time, in, in a sense, like the unconscious at work. And I, I think one of the interests was interesting because a point of link was that image of um, the painting of the Wolfman dream. This was a, the famous patient of Freud and who um, had a dream and then painted it. Interestingly enough, the original uh, recounting of the dream was seven wolves. I'm not quite sure why in the painting yeah. it's telling the five wolves. Yeah. And there were many different uh, renderings and editions of um, the painting, but also the story, how it, it evolved and then, you know, got sort of distorted and, and he had another analysis later with another analyst who wrote about it as well. But it was interesting because it became, um, in fact, because I, I was, as well as this exhibition, I was organizing um, some conference, international conferences around for the centenary on the theme of the unconscious and, and we chose as the logo the image of the Wolfman painted by an artist who came from Odessa, which is where the so-called Wolfman, in fact, came from. So it, it, it sort of has a particular... It, so it's particularly interesting because it became integrated, in, in a way, in the exhibition. Uh, I thought, uh, particularly, of course, a lot of things became integrated, but I thought that particular <coughs> was very interesting, and it, it, it remained in the place where it was already in the museum, yeah. so mm -hmm. that was particularly significant. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Gosh. <laughs> <laughs>
Is there anything anyone else would like to add? Can I, can I ask a completely different question yeah. of Carol, the director of the Freud Museum? Is there an enigma of the hour of the clock on the wall in front of us? Is that a relevant to the history of the museum, or did somebody just forget to wind it up? <laughs> <laughs> it's very apt. <laughs> I hate to say I think it's a subject that's got to wind it up, but it does work and it shines on the air. I think it, it, um, it doesn't, it's not always finding, it, it's, um, I mean, one of those clocks is slightly irritating and shine because it happens very often if I will, um, it would be Francisco and Ben and the work at Fountain House, who was supposed to be first. It hasn't, when I first came a few years ago, it wasn't on display, it was actually up in the, up in the kind of office space, and we put it back on display because it felt like such a special piece that should be on display, and got it working again. So I, um, I'm not entirely sure why it's stuck at the moment, so it's, uh, yeah. Nearly quarter past five. <laughs> <laughs> it's about to bring in some apple strudel or something. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Is there turn or return? Yeah. Um, but um, it, it, it should be a work. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that to irritate someone is to wind them up. <laughs> 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 yeah. About the research group, I also wanted to say that one of the people in it, um, wasn't an analyst, she's an archaeologist who has worked at the Freud Museum many years ago studying the collection. And she, we've um, got this in the compendium, but she identified that some of the things that Freud was sold were in fact reproductions. So of the mirrors, one of them, she says, is not genuine and also one of the vases um, was yeah. a reproduction. So. Yeah. And, and some things in the collection are just pure and simple fakes. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I mean, it's yeah, 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 yeah. genuine, but yeah, yeah not on that. But that's quite okay. interesting, yeah. yeah. Did he mind the idea of a fake? Oh, probably. He probably yeah. would. <laughs> <laughs> it's fairly essential. He, he paid for a reel. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can I actually just respond to something else that you yeah. said, which was interesting about, um, and you talked a bit about, um, about creativity versus successful analysis, because we had an, an exhibition here, which some of you may have come to in 2012, of works by Louise Bourgeois, but also combined with, I mean, it was only, she only sort of revealed very late on in her life that she'd actually been in psychoanalysis for many years, and the exhibition also included quite a lot of her psychoanalytic writings, and one of the things, again, that came out of that quite strongly was this sort of tension between her feeling that if analysis were to be successful, she would right. be such a good artist. Didn't, didn't she say that she used analysis to actually hype up her emotions that she could say she could put them into the work? There was something, I think Juliet Mitchell said something about that in the, in the book that came out. Yeah. Well, it didn't seem to harm her, did it? In terms of her career as an artist. <laughs> But it was interesting that she kept it quite yeah. long, I think, and actually, publicly, it was very hostile. Mm -hmm. <coughs> yeah. But I mean, I mean, I just, 
I think that idea of analysis as resolving, I think, you know, Freud as, as saying it's a, you know, bearable unhappiness or not, yeah. someone else, the quote, but I think it's important that it's not, it isn't, it isn't about resolution, it's actually about accepting uncertainty. Yeah. And I think that's an incredibly, yeah. that's an incredibly you know, powerful thing to, yeah, to bear. I did it in conversation recently with the great um, film director Werner Herzog, and um, I, I I never found out why he said this because it was hard to um, pin him down. Maybe, but um, he was talking that he said the great abomination of the 20th century was psychoanalysis and yoga. <laughs> and, then he, and then he paused and he went, no, the great abomination of the 20th century was the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, but I, know, I don't know why he said that. That's context at all? Like, just... Uh, he, I can't remember how it came up. He was, yeah. I mean, he was utterly fascinating, and and he, I think he liked to provoke as well. And this was in LA, the you know the town of psychoanalysis and yoga. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's probably why. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he's been living there for too long. Yeah, hello. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. Um, are there any other questions at all? So well, maybe. I've been wanting to say this in this house. I think our session is over. <laughs> <laughs>